0: chapters of Jonah, and uh, I want to talk about a few things that surface out of here. As I was uh, reading through this, uh, my mind came to a lot of things, but one of them is uh, how sometimes three little letters can make a huge difference. example would be, Obey, when you put three little letters in front of it, D-I-S becomes Disobey. Respect is changed to disrespect, regard is suddenly disregard, what was once an ability now becomes a disability, engage now becomes disengage, and grace becomes disgrace, all because of dis, D-I-S. But I think we'd be hard-pressed to find more potent trio of letters, We'd be hard-pressed maybe to find a better example or power than the word appointment, which when you add dis becomes disappointment. I couldn't think of how perfect that fit, Jonah. He had an appointment, but he became disappointed. He experienced Disappointment. And most of us, if we're honest, especially the organizationally type minded uh, they like appointments. It's kind of structured. It's predictable, right? I mean, it's, it's in our daytimer an appointment. What we don't like in our daytimer is disappointment. Nobody wants that. We want retirement. We don't want reassignment. We want health. We don't want disease. Divorce instead of family, we don't want those things. We don't want dismissal. We'd rather promotion. What about our disappointments? What do we do with them? I thought about Jonah a lot because he was a disappointed messenger. He experienced disappointment. And if you think about what really are some of the contributing factors to disappointment, we got to admit expectations or unmet, expectations are a huge part of them. Someone or something has failed you. Something has failed you to fulfill your expectations. It could have been an event, could have been a job, could have been a person. You had it all set up in your mind. You had a way a certain situation should work or a way a certain person should respond and they didn't and it didn't and you're disappointed. Sound familiar? (laughs) How do people respond to disappointment? Well there's a lot of ways. One is certainly bitterness, self-made bitterness, resentment, anger, pessimism. We're gonna see a disappointed messenger respond in a certain way but what if with all the disappointment, what if really the one, if you were honest, you're disappointed in it is God? I mean, what if God didn't meet your expectations? I mean, what if God was, well, different than you thought he was or should be? What if your disappointment's with God? That's Jonah. He's disappointed with God, and he's got a lot to teach us about disappointment, a lot to teach us about God. And and we might be kind of familiar with Jonah and we sometimes look at these Old Testament characters as kind of, well, they're way back and, and we kind of giggle with Jonah because he's like a really messed, he doesn't even look like a prophet, does he? If you, if you didn't know he was a prophet, you'd look at him and think, what? this guy's warped. I mean, this guy is way, he's just totally confused. We wouldn't look at him as a prophet, but he's a prophet, man of God. And he's so confused about this whole thing and he's wrestling with things and the more I read, the more I'm like, man, he's not the only one. He wrestles with disappointment, so do we. Let's, let's read chapter 3. And look how this plays out. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. A three-day's walk. You could call it a metropolitan area. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let him call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Because who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we should not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. And so we got this call to Jonah, but it's a second time, which is already a good lesson. I mean, God's not going to all of a sudden say, oh, that's a bummer, he didn't want to do it, I think, <laughs> I think I'll back off. No, he's, he's going to push Jonah. He's going to say, you're not getting away from this calling, Jonah. Sooner or later, when we run from God, we're going to have to face up for the very thing we're running from. Jonah teaches us that. And grace really is seen in God giving Jonah a second chance. You see, God's not at the mercy of Jonah, he's not at the mercy of you and I. He brings Jonah back to the issue, and he brings us back to those issues as well. If I look at verse 3, I thought of something. It said, uh, So Jonah rose, he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. I mean, that's what what motivated him. Now I wonder, as you look at verse 3, if you put your name in there. I mean, think about where God has placed you vocationally, uh, maybe in this season of your life. And uh, could you say, so you arose and went to where God led you? Have you done that? Have you arose? Have you followed through on a calling in your life? I hope you have. Jonah did, to his credit. It wasn't easy, that's for sure. And he had to be anxious. These were not a good people. These were a brutal people. And yet God's love and concern is for all people. It's for anyone who's willing to turn to him, they can find salvation. Yet he's called, and we're told again, to go to a great city. In fact, Genesis uh, 10 verses 11 through 12, 12 revert, refer to Nineveh as a great city. That's where he's sent. This is not a small call. This is not a small uh, um, a trip that he has in mind. He's got a, this is huge. But this message was short. It was simple. It's all that's recorded, but they weren't just words, they were God's words. And these hearts were prepared hearts. And so he goes and preaches the message. The people believe, this is considered by many, the greatest revival ever in history. We get to read about it. These people in Nineveh, like the sailors if you remember, they took these words seriously. And verse 5 really gives us a focus on the faith of these Gentiles. Not just their fear of judgment. There's a real revival going on here. The response is unanimous. It's seen in the action that accompanied their belief. It didn't bring faith, but it did reveal the faith. If you look at verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. How would the word reach the king of Nineveh unless somebody told them? So you got this word being spread, not just Jonah, but people are talking about this. The word reaches the king who's kind of the head of this whole thing, and he's kind of the leader of all this brutality and all this sin and all that's going on in this area, Nineveh, and he repents. And really, if you read about revivals in history, we see the components here. There was a faithful preaching of God's Word. Jonah brought the message as it was. He didn't tweak it. He didn't water it down. He didn't try to kind of sugarcoat it. No prosperity gospel here. This is just straight truth. He preached the Word. There were receptive hearts. God was doing something before that message was even shared. There was a belief. There was a response of belief and a trust in God. And then there was a response to that belief, which really is the evidence of faith. The evidence of faith, they turned from God, and they humbled themselves before God. You see it in every revival. There's some kind of response to faith. And there should have been joy with the prophet, I'm convinced every other prophet would have rejoiced, but this one doesn't. But we shouldn't overlook and fly by the fact of this great revival. There's there's great joy in this revival in Nineveh. I mean, people find forgiveness. There's a whole different transformation going on. But I am thankful, even though he didn't want to, that Jonah preached the message. Because someone had to go. He preached the message to a people he didn't feel was worthy of it. I'm glad he did. I'm glad Jim and Ed Luby, some 30 years ago, didn't look at me and say, what a loser. I ain't taking the gospel to him. He's not worthy of it. I'm grateful they looked somehow in some way and listened to God and said, we're going we're gonna to bring the word to this guy, this guy. And they did, and I'm so grateful to this day, and, and hopefully you are as well. That's why we need to support missionaries and, I, and I, it's my prayer, and it's, I hope it's our, all of our goal corporately to be a sending church. Because how will they believe if they don't hear? Someone's got to go. And we have the privilege of being a part of missionaries. We get to go with them as we send them, and it's a significant reason we do that. So that all people would hear the gospel. Now some find it troubling, and understandably so in verses 9 through 10, that God would relent. Or that He would... If withdraw from action might be another way to put it. Now remember, Jonah expected God to relent. A matter of fact, in very, he says, God, I know you're going to be gracious. You're going to forgive him. I know it. I know you're going to relent. The Ninevites certainly hoped God would relent. So there's different perspectives on this whole thing. God's promise, though, came to those. Came to those who obeyed. And his judgment may be averted by repentance. We know that. God's consistent. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah eighteen, verse five through eight, we read about this. Jonah's not the only one who trumpets this. Jonah's not the only one who wrestled with this concept. Jeremiah eighteen five through eight, we read this. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, "Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does?" declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, pull down, or destroy it. But if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it. So Jeremiah trumpets this thought too, that God can relent. And the reality is why we think in terms of strict judgment, strict justice, God has a better justice that's married to his compassion. And while we may not understand it, because God has a love of a different kind, He promises He'll relent. He responds to repentant hearts. And we see it here in Nineveh. He relented. Praise God He relented. Now some would say, I'm not sure this is a real authentic repentance, Matt. I mean, maybe these people were just like, hey, let's just uh, say a couple things, pray a prayer so I can avoid this judgment. Well, according to Matthew 12 and Jesus, this was a legit repentance. Matthew 12, verse 38 to 41. Scribes and Pharisees are looking for a sign. It's the context, and Jesus answers them. He says, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given it to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Whoa. (laughs) I mean, the people of Nineveh are going to stand up in judgment because they repented. It was an authentic repentance we're reading about. That's why we would call it revival. Now, you might be thinking, I wonder what happened to the Ninevites after this. You've got to come back next week. Because another prophet addresses that. We'll look at that next week. But right now, we've got an authentic revival going on. And so we got this message given, we got this message received and believed, and then chapter 4 begins to zero in on this interaction with the messenger. Follow along in Jonah 4. It greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall us, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger, you're abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, for now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? And Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord appointed a plant, grew it up over Jonah, to be a shade over his head to deliver him from the discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant and it withered. It came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. And then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have great compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand? Jonah's ticked. Matter of fact, the word in Hebrew in anger is this idea of being ablaze with anger. He's scorched. This isn't just a little irritation. He's ticked. But what's so interesting is why he's upset. He's disappointed. God did what he thought he would do, and but that wasn't what Jonah thought he should do. He's disappointed. If you remember again, beginning, I talked about what's disappointment is we expect something or expect someone to do a certain way or do a certain thing, and and it doesn't happen, we're disappointed. That's Jonah. He expected God to be one way, and God wasn't. He expected God to act in a certain way, and God didn't, and he was disappointed. More than that, he's angry, because that's how we respond oftentimes when we're disappointed. Every prophet in the history of Israel, I believe, would have been overjoyed with the results, but God did something other than what Jonah hoped for. And Jonah's anger is intense. He prayed to live in chapter 2. He's not what he's praying in chapter 4. He's praying to die. Because he's protesting over God's attributes, for which, if we read in the Psalms, God's praised for. God's praised in the Psalms for being gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. Here, Jonah's protesting about it. He's not in a very good place. He's, we could say he's in a serious place. There's anger, then there's despair. But what I find in verse 3 are some key words I think that really help you and I understand a little bit about where he's at. It's the three words better to me. It seems better to me, God, that this would happen. You see, all Jonah's foundational convictions are being challenged. And you see that me centeredness come in. He's disappointed. Because his his perspective of it is me oriented, he's a me centered mindset. Jonah didn't want things to turn out the way they did. I mean, think about it. that's a that's a tough thought to process. That's a challenging thought. What if God brought you and led you in a different direction you'd rather not go? I mean, what if you're really comfortable right now in your life? got a good job and, and things are going well and, and God comes along and says I got a call for you and it's to go here I wonder if we'd fight it I wonder if we resist it how disappointed would you be what if God led us corporately in a direction we didn't see coming or a direction that kind of went against maybe what we thought maybe should happen how would we respond This is not just a personal message it's a corporate message to us as a church too Would we be disappointed with God? Deep down, would the question go, nah, that's not what I want. God, that's not what's best. I'm going to stay put. When that happens, when we face those issues, we need to understand what's going on. Our perspective is distorted. Our reference point, it's all wrong. Because it's a me-centeredness. And Jonah's message was about God. And yet his life is marked about disappointment. Because it's, come, it's become about him. He does not want to let go of his formulations about the character of God. And I thought if even a true prophet of God lived with illusions about who God is, how much more cautious should you and I be? Jonah's disposition, I think, is based on at least six related perspectives. I think Jonah's perspective is God should not be the kind of God who forgives violently evil people even if they repent. Evil should be punished, not forgiven. Some years ago, you may remember Ted Bundy. Brutal serial killer. Finally, I mean, the amount, several, several lives he took. Several, several families grieved because of his actions. And he confessed to it. He confessed to the pornography that was involved in it. He confessed to all of it. Some of you may remember James Dobson, who I think was his last interview with him. And in that interview, Ted Bundy professed that he had a conversion take place. That he trusts his Christ for salvation and forgiveness. That sparked an uproar in the unbelieving world. But believers were left with a difficult question. Wait a minute. Could God really forgive this? Could a guy live like a monster his whole life and get to the end of the life and repent, and would God really forgive him despite all that he did? I asked the question. Maybe you asked it. That's what Jonah's asking. Could these brutal people, to these people, God, who just who cut people's heads off and did things, atrocious things, could they now all of a sudden repent and be forgiven? God, that, that's not right. That seems really, really wrong. That's what Jonah's wrestling with, and if we're honest, so do we. Jonah's perspective, justice, to be just, requires that people suffer the full consequences of their actions, whether they are repentant or not. Nineveh has to be destroyed, Jonah's perspective, for justice to prevail. Jonah's perspective, Nineveh has become too evil to affect a true repentance and receive forgiveness. Nineveh really can't be truly repentant because after all, look at what they did in Jonah's mind. Even if they could be. I mean, forgiveness cannot effectively begin a new life for them, could it? Jonah's thinking no. And I think Jonah's perspective is people need to be able to trust a consistent God who loves a certain way, who loves a way that's predictable. He loves good people if they do a few things wrong. He he can forgive that. But, But for the people who don't, That's just too out there. That's too much of an other type of love. It's a relentless love. It's, I think in Jonah's mind, a dangerous love. So in Jonah's mind, that's not a picture of a consistent God. A consistent God would act the way we think he should act. He faced a God that was so other than what he perceived him to be. Jonah's mind, living faithfully, loses its positive value if evil people are forgiven through simple repentance. I mean, why live a godly life if you can just later on repent? I've had people say that to me. Why shouldn't I live it up now? Later I can deal with God. I'm like, how do you know you're going to want to later? It's odd times people don't want to. They think they will, they'll put it off, and all of a sudden they get later in their life, like, I don't want nothing to do with God. Kind of late now, huh? Nineveh wanted to. They were ready. They had receptive hearts. Jonah forgot about all that. And I think in Jonah's perspective, there's this triumph of evil living is flaunted if the evil escape judgment in the last days. I think in Jonah's mind, this flaunting is too much for the victims of evil actions. Those who are weary of those who are evil escaping punishment through Jonah's perspective. And Jonah's perspectives on God's actions, if you're honest, I, I think have some merit from a human perspective. Because, but God is slow to anger. In God's slow to anger with Jonah. If you look at chapter 4, he, he talks Jonah through this. I, I read it over and over and I thought, man, why didn't he just have a cosmic hand come out and <laughs> backhand him and say, man, get with it, Jonah. But he doesn't. I would have. That's why I wouldn't be a good God. Uh, and, uh, but he talks him through it. He talks him through it. Gives an example, a lesson. By giving him a plant to deal with. And in that, he questions the messenger. He uses questions to deal with Jonah. My wife is good counseling. Use questions to dig deeper and find out what's really going on. And this is the wonderful counselor at work. And God said, Do you have any reason to be angry? It's a legit question. Look at the answer, first of all. There is none. What does he do? He goes and pouts. He goes out of the city, he's going to go up on a hill when he's going to look at Nineveh. There's no satisfactory answer for Jonah right now. God asks you the same question in our disappointment. Do you have any right to be angry? Think about the last time you were disappointed. And then think about that question. Do you have any right to be disappointed? And, and, And what's the reason for your disappointment? How are you reacting to the disappointment? I think it's a good question. It causes us to go a little deeper than just the circumstantial things right around us. In verse 5, if I read, what should Jonah have been doing? I thought, okay, if we looked at this situation, you had revival of 120,000 people. And I'm Jonah. The logical thing says, man, these people need teaching. We've got to disciple these people. I mean, they have a whole different reference of life than what they came from. They need some help. They need some teaching. I think that's what Jonah should have been doing, but that's not what he did. He goes out on a hill. And as he sits on a hill... I think he wrestled with this distorted picture of grace. He had a distorted view of the nature of grace. In other words, the origin of grace. Jonah disdained as God. (laughs) He's the origin of the grace. Jonah did not like because grace could not be earned. There wasn't an element in there of, of behavioral modification. So he didn't really understand the nature of grace, and he certainly didn't understand the recipients of grace, because he saw the Ninevites as unworthy. They were beyond God's favor. He wrestled with the distribution of grace. Because grace is unmerited, no one can legitimately feel they have a claim on it, Jonah included. Sovereignly distributed. That's grace. And as God put it, I will be gracious Whom I will be gracious to, and I'll have compassion on whom I will show compassion. In other words, I distribute grace the way I see, not you, Jonah. And the goal of grace, lest we forget, is not happiness, it's holiness. That's the goal of grace, that you and I would live a holy life because that would be one of a fragrant offering to God of worship. That's the goal. That we'd be brought into fellowship with God and our life would move from a me-centeredness to a God-centeredness. But Jonah loses perspective because verse 5, we see this pouting prophet made a shelter for himself. He sat under it in a shade until he could see what would happen to the city. That's, that's insightful. You know what Jonah's doing. He's watching the city going, I certainly hope he changes his mind. I hope this city goes down. Because in Jonah's mind, it should be destroyed. So there he is on a hill watching us take place, and he wants fire to come down. I remember, um, David will remember this, when we lived in Sparta, um, uh, behind us one time on the hills behind us, a fire broke out. And you could kind of see the smoke, and you could see it start to climb this hill. And so it was fascinating to watch from a distance. And so we did what, I guess, Pretty uncompassionate people. We did. We got lawn chairs and chips and went up on the hill and watched this fire. It was too far away. There's nothing we could do. Don't look at me like that. Okay, <laughs> and uh, we could see the fire trucks coming and the police cars, and we're like, "Boy, look at that thing. I hope that man. They better stop it over here." And we so we're kind of got this. We're watching this thing, kind of hoping the fire stops. Jonah's watching this thing, hoping the fire comes. He wants the city destroyed. And so he's up on this hill, but God won't leave him alone. God's relentless in his love for Nineveh, and he's relentless in his love for Jonah. And although he's lost perspective, although he's forgot God's choice of Israel, God's blessing of Israel, that it was due solely to his grace, he forgot about that. In verse 6 we read that God appoints. You ever notice this book, God appoints a lot of things? Great fish, God appoints a plant, He appoints a lot of things. And here he appoints a plant. And it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. The next verse is just you shake your head. Jonah's extremely happy about the plant. Is he happy about the salvation of Nineveh? Absolutely not. But he's comfortable now. Jonah's happy. Let's not move on. Don't you like being comfortable too? We're happy when we're comfortable. We're happy when there's smooth sailing. We're happy when things are going well. We don't have too much turbulence in our life. We're happy. But we're not happy when we're discomfort. We're not happy when all of a sudden life isn't smooth like we want it. We become unhappy. And we're like Jonah because, again, we're back to disappointment, unmet expectations. He's extremely happy right now about this plant because it's about his comfort. He's delivered from his discomfort. And that's a good thing. But it's not a good thing in Jonah's mind that the people you're looking at are, are delivered from their sin. Jonah forgets his calling. Because it's not about him. It's not about his comfort. His disappointment leads to a loss of perspective. It will lead to a loss of perspective every single time. If you and I aren't careful. Well, if you don't believe me, if you lost perspective, redone. Verse 7 and 8. God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. It came about when the sun came up that day. God appointed a scorching east wind. By the way, that word scorching is similar to the word anger. God sent a scorching, hot, blazing wind to a blazing prophet who was scorching with anger. He says, you want heat? (laughs) You want it hot? Okay, I'll give you hot. And he beats down. He gets sunstroke. He becomes faint, begs with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Under the plant, he's happy. Plant gone, not so much. (laughs) He wants to die. You want to talk about losing perspective. It's easy to lose perspective. There's a man in a museum who lost perspective. He was a young man in an art museum, and he had a job to do. It was a good job. And you could say one sentence really summarized his job. It was to lead people to paintings answer their questions, and step out of the way. Well, initially, it was great. He walked the clients to the framed treasures, identified the artists, and he stepped out of the way. He said, this is Monet. And he let them look. He would step back. His people oohed and odd. They asked a question or two. And when they were ready, he would lead them to the next masterpiece and repeat the sequence. This is the work of Rembrandt. He stepped back. He stood and let them, ooh and ah, and enjoy the beautiful painting. Simple job, delightful job, you could say. He took great pride in his work. not well, Too much pride, some might say. Because in a short time, he forgot his role. He began to think people came to see him. and Rather than step away from the work of art, he began to linger near it, a little closer. They oohed and ahed, and he said, oh, glad you like it. They would talk about how beautiful a painting is, and he'd say thank you. Begin to take credit for work he didn't do. Visitors disregarded his comments, but they couldn't dismiss his movements because lingering near the paintings wasn't good enough. Now now his frame began to cover the paintings. Finally, his body blocked the entire pieces. People could not see, people could see him, but they, they couldn't see the art. You see, the very work he was sent to reveal, he began to conceal. And that's what happens when we have a me-centered way of life. It seems odd to me that Jonah is so concerned about this plant and the plant's death. It's odd to God too, because in verse 10, God says, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight, and perished overnight. He was concerned about the plant. He had compassion on the plant, we're even told. I call that distorted thinking. When your compassion goes to a thing and not towards people, then you know you're really out of balance. But God knows what He's doing because the second time He appointed a scorching wind, He appointed a worm. He knows what He's doing. And we can look at his methods and his ways and how he drills a man and thrills a man. You see, God knows what Jonah's all about and he knows what we're all about. Jonah's problem is he loves Jonah above all. Not God in this situation. Verse 9, God gives him another question. It's unanswerable, but boy, Jonah tries. Should I not? Actually, do you have good reason to be angry? Verse 9 I have good reason to be angry, even to death, he says. He's trying to justify it. We kind of look at it and chuckle, because God gives us the ability to look back on it, but Jonah's not chuckling right now. He really does want to die. It's a tough one. Why? Because he set his heart on something else. And God kind of went outside his formulated uh, a way of the way God should act. He's disappointed. He began to look at his comfort not what's going on, he became compassionate towards things more than people. I wonder, what would happen if God ripped some things away that were important to you? What if your heart was so set to the degree that if God took it away your life would fall apart? How would you respond? Here it's just a plant. But when you're disappointed with God it becomes a major problem. Which asks the question, what's more important, your comfort or another salvation? That's really the question. That's a hard question. That's a question God's trying to help Jonah face. You have compassion about a plant, but these are real people. Dying in their sin, Jonah. Do you get the problem here? Can you see it? He sent the plant to try to teach him the lesson. I wish the book ended happily ever after. It leaves us hanging. I hate movies like that. We we want it wrapped up. I want to see Jonah fall on his face, weep in tears, and say, God, I'm an idiot. Forgive me. That's what I want to see. But the book ends with a question. And I think it's significant, it does, because we need to ask the question question, and we need to answer it. It it ends this way for us, as much as Jonah. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons they don't even know the difference between their right and left hand. Morally, spiritually, they don't have a clue. Should I not have compassion on them? They're in the, the bookends. What do we do with that? We begin to look around our world and say, shouldn't God have compassion on them? Yeah, they seem far gone. Yeah, they're warped. They're thinking. And, but shouldn't God have compassion on them? I mean, think about, if you think about the terrorists around the world, and we look at them, and we, oh my gosh, they're horrible things they're doing. Should not God have compassion on them? Oh, that's a tough question, isn't it? It causes us to wrestle. It caused Jonah to wrestle. But I'm convinced of this. A me-focused life brings disappointment. But a God-centered life will bring hope. That you can take to the bank. You see, the God-centered life works and it rescues us from a life that doesn't work. Is your life God-centered? Jonah, it's not about you. because Jonah thought it was. Look again, verse 8. Death is better to me. Jonah, since when is this about you? This isn't about you, Jonah. It's about what God's doing. And you see that me-centeredness brings disappointment and it always will. But a God-centered life works, and it rescues us from a life that doesn't. And so this book leaves us with this question, causes you and I to deal with it and face it. If you want evidence that a life lived disappointed with God, this me-centered life doesn't work, look at Jonah. He's a great walking example that God left for us to see of what disappointment is and how it comes from a me-centered life. God's plans, if we're honest, are often surprising are unexpected. Often cross-grain with our plans. The question that you and I need to face is if if you and I will choose to live life striving to submit rather than resist. We face it every day. We face it when God leads us somewhere. Will we resist or will we submit? You see, moving to a God-centered life is not to talk about it. It's to actually move into it. And God's questions to Jonah... And to you and I are meant to bring perspective into our lives. There's three things I I hope we can leave with, all of us. Is that you and I can continue to praise God for His relentless love. I mean, don't miss it. In this text, we see God goes to great lengths and trouble to allow for the unlikely possibility of the reversal of the violent through repentance. God is patient because He loves people. He has a relentless love. And such an enemy like the Ninevite, Ninevites should be transformed that our transformed cannot be explained in ordinary human terms. It's extraordinary. It's the work of God and his extravagant, relentless love. I love Romans 5, eight, But God demonstrates love towards us. And if you know the verse, you know I left a word out. Two words. God demonstrates his own love. It's a love of a different kind. It's a relentless love. It's a love that goes outside of our box. How do we know? Because while we were yet sinners at your worst, He still forgave you. He still forgave me. We need to praise God for His relentless love. God's free to judge sin according to His righteousness and free to forgive because of His compassion. He's a relentless love. We need to praise it, even when we question it. We need to confess we really have no room for disappointment with God. Our expectations can become self-centered, and we need to confess those times we're more concerned about our ways than His. How many people know this story? Um, Many, many years ago, I shouldn't say it because I date myself. Um, Several years ago, for the most part, I was engaged to a young lady named Dina. And she was a believer... Wonderful young lady. And uh, we began to map our life out and what it was going to look like and, and, and where we would go and where we would live and some of those things. And, uh, and so I had everything all planned and mapped out. Okay, here's what it's going to look like. Here's where we'll go. Here's what it's going to be like. And then the unthinkable happened. She called it off. I'm like, what? I mean, that's not God's plan here. we got this thing all mapped out here. I mean, God, you can't be doing this. You can't be. I got this Christian lady, got these plans. Dina figured it out quicker than I did. It wasn't God's plan. It wasn't what he had in store. I wish I could say I wasn't disappointed with God. I wish I could say, yeah, God, what a great plan. We'll move away from this relationship, and certainly you got something else, God. I wish I would have said that right away. I didn't. I was disappointed with God because I was more concerned about my way and my plan than His. And it led to great disappointment in a season of really wandering spiritually in a desert. Be careful because we need to confess we have no room for disappointment with God. His ways are far higher than than ours and they're certainly better because a life with Him works. And number three is because of that disappointment I had lost something. I lost a sense of calling. You see when we're concerned about our ways we forget something. We have a calling to a different way. His way. And that's the third application. Recognize we are God's ambassadors of reconciliation. It's your calling. It's my calling. That's 2 Corinthians 5:18 through 19. That's our call to a ministry of reconciliation. And the timeless grace of the matter is that God brings Jonah to participate in the wonder of God's ways in the world and he invites you and I to do the same thing. And to something he's doing that's far greater than we could ever imagine. And it seems like almost a participatory risk to declare the possibility of forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. At least in our perspective. Perhaps in the short term or long term we think we're afraid they're going to abuse it. So, why would we proclaim it to them if they're going to abuse it? But it's our calling. We're sent as ambassadors. Our calling is to go with the message to all people and let God take it. Let God do what he wants. Let's not be reluctant. Let's not be resistant. Let's you and I move from a me centered way of life to a God centered life. It's one of the main lessons we learned from Jonah. Let's pray. God, I used to like the book of Jonah. (laughs) more I study, I don't like it so much anymore. Um, I find myself very, very convicted. Now I think I learned maybe the first time in my life really the degree and the significance of this book and why you left it in Scripture. Lord, it ends in a question, a question you want each of us this morning to wrestle with. How will we look at life? Will we look at it through our eyes or yours? Will we love people more than things? Will we embrace our calling or our comfort? Not easy questions, God. Not easy for anybody in this room. They're difficult. I get that. But what I'm so grateful God is the patience you show Jonah and the patience you show with us. If we we're honest, there's times we we look up to the heavens and wonder what's going on. We wonder how you could allow things and if we we're honest, we look at some people and hear their testimony and their forgiveness and scratch our head and think, "Uh oh. Bottom's going to drop out of this one." instead of praising you for your relentless love for all people, certainly us. And so God, what my prayer is for myself and my brothers and sisters here is that we would surrender. We'd surrender to your call in our life. No matter where, no matter when, no matter what. We would not resist it. And God, you would so pour into our hearts your relentless love that would splash over into the relationships around us. That we would love you certainly and love people more than the things in our life. God, I know if that would happen, you'd be pleased. I know you'd be praised. And I know lives would be changed for your kingdom. And so Lord, I pray this in the precious name of the Savior, Jesus. Amen.